Okay, I'm pulling out of my driveway. We all know what that means. It's time for another drive to work. Okay, I'm back from the future. Um, uh, after, I finished, after I finished my Theros podcast that went on forever, I realized that I needed to do a few podcasts to break it up. So once again, I've come from the future today to talk about the past. So today, I'm going to do another of my series, um, 20 Years and 20 Podcasts in which I'm going to talk about each year of magic for a whole podcast. Uh, And today, I'm going to be talking about 1995. A good year. Um, So I have done two previous podcasts on 1993 and 1994. So go listen to those if you haven't. I'm going to assume you have when I talk about 1995. Okay, so last we left, um, magic was exploding. It was going all over the place. But uh, it had a lot more to grow, uh, and, and there were a lot of growing pains. So last time I talked about Fallen Empires, that was the first... Um, every, everything we had printed sold out immediately, and Fallen Empires, we finally got the printing under control. We said everybody will print what you want. They didn't believe us, overordered, and it flooded the market. And so um, Magic was struggling a little bit at this point um, because they... Uh, you know, they, they hadn't... So if you look at 1994, um, 94 had a lot of products. If you count the second um, printing of Arabian Nights, there was Arabian Nights, Antiquities, Legend, The Dark, and Fallen Empires, um, and also there was another uh, uh, revised, all came out. That's six sets that came out in one year. So this year, then things didn't come out quite as fast, although there, there, were, there was plenty that did come out. Um, so the first release of the year was actually in April. Nothing came out until April. And remember, um, Fallen Empires had come out near the end of the year. So there was a good gap before anything new came out. Uh, and, it, and it wasn't even a, a new expansion. It was, of course, that fourth edition. Um, and uh, fourth edition had some controversy because um, one of the things they'd always planned to do with the core set was use it as a place to reprint cards from other expansions, to bring some stuff from the expansions into... Um, make it more accessible. Because also, remember, a lot of people had missed getting some of the sets. And so, um, what they did is they took some cards and printed them, but the problem was, because a lot of the cards had been kind of scarce, because they hadn't printed that many of them, reprinting them devalued some of the cards. And in some cases, it was a significant devaluing of the cards. And people were kind of upset about it. Um, as you see later in the year, this will, this will lead to something. Um, the other thing that happened in April of that year... Oh, one more thing about, I guess, 4th edition. Uh, so 4th edition um, tried to remove a lot of cards. So uh, Alpha and Beta came out, the Unlimited uh, you know, Limited came out, then Unlimited, which was the same, you know, minus fixing a few things with the same card pull. Uh, when Revised came out, they tried to get rid of what they thought was the most broken thing. So the Power 9 were all gone. Uh, a lot of things that were really complicated were gone. But they hadn't got rid of everything yet. And so... Fourth edition was the next sort of purging of powerful things. Uh, fourth edition was the first core set not to have dual lands in it. Uh, it got rid of a lot of the stuff that had been banned restricted. Interestingly, not everything had been removed from fourth edition. Fourth edition actually had a, a few cards l- that are still pretty powerful. Um, Balance is probably the, the wackiest one. Um, it still had Channel. It still had Mind Twist. Um, there were still some cards in it that were pretty... Um, uh, it also had, I think it had Demonic Tutor still. 
um, there are some powerful cards that were still in it. Um, and at the same time of it coming out, uh, uh, the, the banned restricted list had started the year before, but it continued. And, and, and in April of this year, um, Balance and Fork and Zern Orb all got restricted. Uh, Balance and Fork had been from Alpha. Balance, by the way, was still in within fourth edition. Uh, and Fork might have also been. Uh, Zern Orb was from Ice Age. Uh, it, it had never got stuck in, but it finally got restricted. Um, it just proved very, very dangerous with a lot of the combos, ba- Balance being a big one, one of the big ones. Okay, so in May was uh, the 95 U.S. Nationals. Um, the reason that's kind of important, I mean, I guess to me it's important, uh, for starters, it was a sign that the Nationals were starting up. Now, 94 had had a U.S. Nationals. This was the second U.S. Nationals. Um, but for the first time, they did something different they'd never done before. They did regionals. Um, before, Nationals was kind of just like show up in San Jose, because San Jose was the 94 U.S. Nationals. This year, there were different regionals that happened, uh, and so one of the things is I, I worked in the Southwest, because I was in California, and I was a judge at the time, and so the Southwest regionals were famous in that, uh, it was the introduction of Mark Justice, who would go on to be, uh, in early Magic, he ended up becoming the first sort of, um, big name player of Magic, uh, you know, if, if I talk about hi- the history of Magic and talk about when, you know, every once in a while there's a player where everybody, you know, goes, this is the best player. This is the best Magic player. Mark Justice was kind of the first one that there's pretty group consensus that he was the best player. Um, and he ended up, um, he ended up coming in second at U.S. Nationals, losing to a guy named Joel Unger. Um, uh, and then at U.S. Nationals, Mark Justice played Henry Stern in the finals and managed to come back to beat him. Um, the, the, the U.S. Nationals that year were in Philadelphia, and it was, it was hot, by the way. I was there. It was, it was like you would go out late at night, and you'd open the door because it was air-conditioned inside the thing, and then you would just hit this wave of heat. You know, it, it was like as hot as you would expect on like a, a hot, hot, hot summer day, except dead at night, which is not usually that hot. Um, and uh, it was actually a double elimination. What happened was, um, if you, once you lost... You had to lose twice to be kicked out of the tournament. So in the finals, uh, Mark Justice had come from the loser's bracket. Henry Stern was from the winner's bracket. Henry Stern had to win one match, and Mark Justice had to win two matches. But he did. Mark Justice came back. Uh, he almost messed it up. He, he uh, almost screwed up how he did Channel Fireball, because his, uh, his deck had a, ch- a Channel Fireball as one of his kills. Um, Henry played a deck called Vice Age. Um, it also was a tournament where... Um, uh, what's it called? A demonic, uh, demonic consultation. Uh, Mark, uh, Mike Long. The, the top four of, of that year, by the way, the U.S. Nationals, uh, Mark Justice came in first, Henry Stern came in second, and third was Mike Long and a guy named Pete Lyre, who for a long time would be a teammate of Mike's. Um, anyway, they would go on to the U.S. team. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Um, so that was the first year that regionals happened in the United States. It was also the first year that there were significant foreign tournaments. I believe there were 14 national tournaments. There might have been a little bit more than that. That's my memory. Um, but what happened was, it's the first year where, we'll get to we'll get to the Worlds in a second, but where multiple countries had nationals and sent their nationals to Worlds. There was quite a number of them. I mean, compared to the previous year, where there had been, I, I think, three countries that had run nationals. It, it had been the United States. Um, it had been the United States, and uh, France and Belgium had run nationals. Okay, now, 
this year, um, there have been nationals in a whole bunch of countries. Um, it was in the teens. My memory's 14, might have been 18. But anyway, um, so right after, in June, was Ice Age. Now, Ice Age, a uh, couple things. First off, um, Ice Age had the very first pre-release. Now, it wasn't a pre-release in the sense that there were a lot of pre-releases. There was one pre-release. It was in Toronto. Uh, and I was there. Um, in fact, at the time, I was freelancing for The Duelist. And they flew me to Toronto to cover it for The Duelist. Uh, and an interesting twist, I actually played in the event because they wanted the vantage point of someone, you know, the, I wrote the article as someone who, who had participated in the first pre-release. But what happened was there was a cut to day two, and I made the cut to day two, and then I was informed that I needed to drop out because they didn't want somebody, they had flown there um, to win the thing. Uh, I, by the way, had opened up um, a Zern orb. I might have had two Zern orbs. And I had, oh, what's the name of that? It's a card where you, um, you activated it and made your opponent name the top card of the library, and if they didn't name the correct card, they lost two life. Um, I'm flicking the name of the card. But anyway, at a previous tournament, when no one knows the names of the cards, it was pretty powerful. Uh, and basically, I, once I got that out, I tended to beat people with it, and then I made Zern Orbs to keep from dying. Anyway, I did pretty well. Uh, that event would go on to be won by Dave Humphreys, who uh, would become uh, a Pro Tour regular, who would be on Team Your Move Games, who won a Pro Tour as part of Team Your Move Games, would go on to become... Um, get inducted into the Hall of Fame, and later we get hired by Wizards, where he currently is um, our development manager, the manager of our development team. Anyway, um, uh, Dave came to attention. In fact, when we were putting the first Pro Tour together, um, one of the things that we were keeping in mind was we were trying to find good players, and so we invited people that had done well at events. Like we, in order to invite Dave Humphreys, we said, well, the winner of the Ice Age pre-release gets invited to the first Pro Tour. And so because of Dave Humphreys, that was one of the things that got you invited, so we got Dave Humphreys there. Um, I'll talk about that. In 96, I talked about the Pro Tour. That doesn't happen for a year. Um, so Ice Age was created by the East Coast Playtesters. So Scaffolize, uh, Jim Lynn, Dave Petty, and Chris Page. Um, in fact, when Richard first realized that magic was going to happen, he talked to his different playtest groups, because he had a bunch of different playtest groups, and most of them ended up uh, kind of getting an assignment to work on a set for Magic. Uh, the first thing they worked on was Ice Age. In fact, the plan originally was Magic the Gathering would be the first year of Magic, and they were talking about Magic Ice Age being the second, that, that it would be a new, the Magic was going to shift every year, uh, and that the Gathering was not going to be the, the follow-up every year, just each year would rotate to a new name. And so Scaff and fellows, the East Coast Playtesters, were working on Magic the Ice Age, or Magic Ice Age. Um... Now, Ice Age uh, was not the first large set. I mean, uh, Legends, Legends had been the first large set expansion. Um, but Ice Age was the first one in which um, they kind of had sealed in mind, although to be honest, it was painful. Uh, I mean, one could argue Mirage was the first set truly developed with sealed in mind. Uh, but Ice Age was the first one in which sealed was played. Um, there wasn't much sealed played with legends. Uh, I mean, I did do a little bit of sealed legends, uh, but that was that was oh horrible. Um, but Ice Age was the first set in which they ran sealed events. It became part of how things happen. Um, draft hadn't really happened yet. That didn't happen until the Pro Tour started. But there was there was people playing sealed events. Uh, in fact, down in California, we had started something we called um, mini masters. Or sorry, we started grand masters, which is you started with a. Uh, 
we used to have um, they, they had called them starter decks that had 60 cards and then there were normal boosters that had 15 and uh, Grandmasters you opened up a sealed and started playing with it and then if you beat your opponent you got his cards and then you could rebuild your deck Mini Masters with the same idea, but built out of a booster. Anyway, Grandmaster and Mini Master, I'm pretty sure came, well, I know Mini Master did, but uh, I believe came out of California. Um, so Ice Age, uh, what else went on with Ice Age? So Ice Age did a bunch of little things. Uh, the white mana symbol changed. Uh, all the mana symbols had gotten made. Uh, Jesper, who was the art director, decided that he didn't like the white mana symbol, and so it officially got changed for Ice Age. Uh, one of the interesting things is there's some promo cards that went into magazines, one of which was a white card, and the promo card had to be printed earlier, and it didn't have the new white band symbol, and then the one that appeared in the set did uh, have the new symbol. And so uh, the promo card actually is a quirky little thing in that it's the only version of that card that is a different mana symbol. Um, so it's a little bit of a collector's item for those that have it. Um, I think it was prismatic something. Ah, I'm blanking on it. But anyway, it was a white, I think it was an aura. Um, okay, uh, Ice Age did very well. Um, it was definitely very popular. Um, it had a theme and had a story. Uh, it took place on Air, which was on Dominaria, and there was an Ice Age, if the name didn't give that one away. Um, there, was a, there was the first time, there, there was a promotional video made to support it, which you've never seen, by the way. If you've never seen, go on Google right now, uh, and put uh, Ice Age, uh, I don't know, Ice Age tra- trailer or teaser or something, and you will see something that is quite fun to watch. It, it is, it is, uh, it is interesting. I don't want to say much more. Just go watch it. it, it it's quite interesting. Uh, I mean, it, it's a, a relic of its time. Um, Ice Age also was, uh, like I said, it's the first large set in which people really could get their hands on the cards, um, and it was definitely. Uh, it was a popular set. Uh, it was it was the big release of the year, um, and it had you know s- introduced cantrips to magic. Uh, cantrips being uh, what we call when you draw a card, a spell that has uh, draw a card tacked onto it. The cantrips in Ice Age didn't let you draw a card at the beginning of the next turn um, because they were worried about I don't know they being too strong, which we learned they weren't. Um, it introduced Kingdom of Upkeep, which is something we used for a while. Um, it had, um, what else did it have? It, it had, uh, I mean, it had more legendary cards that had been introduced the year before. Um, I didn't write all the mechanics down. But anyway, Ice Age definitely uh, had a, a very strong flavor theme, and it, it was pretty popular. Okay, so following Ice Age in July was Chronicles. So what Chronicles was is Wizards felt like there had been a lot of fun cards and because of the short supply, a lot of them weren't in players' hands. And some of them weren't the kind of thing they felt they could put into a core set. There was gold cards, there was legendary creatures, there, there were just things that the core set didn't do. And so they made a set called Chronicles that was kind of a best of, um, of the previous year. I, I believe it had in it stuff from Arabian Nights and Antiquities and Legends, I think the Dark... Um, anyway, it was, it was mostly the best of 94, um, and they printed, they were able to print plenty. So, what happened was, much like, uh, when, uh, 4th edition came out, but this was even harsher, is there were cards that were very valuable, because they were very rare, because very few people had them, and all of a sudden, the quantity of the card that existed shot way, way, way up. And so the cards plummeted in value, because 
a lot of the reason, reason the cards had the value they did was because of rarity. And that when Chronicles got printed, that rarity dropped significantly. Um, there was a huge outcry, uh, a combination of both 4th edition and Chronicles, uh, mostly from collectors, but just from average, I mean, every player on some level is a collector, and so there was a big outcry. So in August that year, I believe, I believe it was August, that's my research, um, they created something called the Restricted List. Uh, and the Restricted List said, okay, okay, we're not going to print um, any uncommons or rares, well, for every set, um, I guess we were allowed to take 20% of the cards and those could be reprinted, and the remaining 80% of the uncommons and the rares, uh, oh, actually, of the rares of sets going forward and some of the uncommons of some of the earlier sets would not get reprinted. The uncommons would later be redacted a couple of years later. Um, but basically, it said, here are cards we will never print, and had a list. Um, it is something Wizards has kept. This was um, you know, 18 years ago. We have kept that promise. It is a thorn in the side of R&D, a thorn in the side of the player base. Uh, it is something that is very controversial even to this day. But uh, Wizards has tried to hold true to its word. and I mean, we, we haven't tried. We have. Uh, and we have not reprinted anything from the reserve list and do not plan to. Um, but this is where the reserve list happened in, in August of this year. Also in this year, in August, there was something called the Renaissance. So I talked a lot about how magic was growing, and I mentioned a little bit in 95 how it was growing in the, in the United States, but that it hadn't really grown too much um, internationally. And 95 was the year of magic starting to go international. I believe in early 95, um, it, Italy was the first, Italian was the first language um, to, outside of English to, be, to print magic, and they printed an Italian legend. So actually, if you ever... Now there's a legend in English, but there was later Italians in... Ita- I'm sorry, there was legends in Italian. Um, uh, Renaissance was... Um, so here's the trick is, when we started doing um, uh, the core set um, in other languages, there were gaps... Oh, oh, one of the... Okay, here's what it was. One of the promises was that we would do... Uh, new cards in a black border before they existed in a white border. And the course that was in white border. So Chronicles was a chance to take cards that I think were in the core set that that language started in um, and that varied it, Renaissance would vary a little bit. Um, I think for French, German, and Italian uh, it might have been either 3rd or 4th edition um it was black-bordered cards of the cards they had in white border, allowing them to get access to black-bordered cards in their language. Um, and so Renaissance was the first time that... Um, well, I mean, it was a product specifically made to help get cards in black border into languages that didn't have those black-bordered cards in that language. Um, and it was definitely a sign of the times that this was a year in which French and German and Italian all started getting printed. Uh, and, and that we produced magic for the first time ever in these languages, and it started in 1995. Uh, some of them were early. Italian was first, and then I think French, and then I think German. Um, also, by the way, to talk about the international quality of magic, uh, in August that year was the first, well, not the first world, 94 was the first world, but the first world that was its own event. 1994 world that was held at Gen Con, Zach Dolan beat, uh, uh, American Zach Dolan beat Frenchman Bertrand Lestray. Um, this year, 
we rented out of the Red Lion Inn uh, right by the Seattle airport, by SeaTac Airport, and we held an event that was not... Was the only, it wasn't at another event. It was the Magic World Championships. It's the very first one. Uh, there were somewhere between 14 and 18 teams. All the teams at a national showed up. Um, uh, Alexander Blumke from Switzerland ended up defeating Mark Hernandez from France. Um, and uh, it was the second time. So the, France had come in second at t- t- the first two worlds. They also would later come in second at the first uh, Pro Tour, uh, which would begin a little streak of them having trouble coming in first, but all, coming in second a lot. That would be a running joke for a while. Um, the uh, Mark Justice and Henry Stern, by the way, came in third. And so um, they both did really well. Oh, the U.S. team, by the way, I mentioned this before, Mark Justice, Henry Stern, Mike Long, and Pete Lyre won the very first team event, which, uh, for those that read an article where I wrote about it, I really, really wanted us to do a team event. Uh, I, I could I could not convince anybody there that we should make it high, more high profile, but I, I was given permission to track it. And so I tracked it and I reported it. Uh, and so it's the first event where we reported a winner for the team event, which is, there's no playoff or anything. It's just, those are the people that had the best scores. The interesting thing about it was the U.S. national team uh, their average, their player average was the cutoff for top eight because two of the team members made the top eight and two more, I think Mike Long was one match away from making top eight and Pete Lyre was two matches away from, from top eight. So it was a very, very dominant team. Uh, and it, was, it was the first year America would go on to win and, um, in the first seven years, I believe, of the Pro Tour uh, World Championships. They won six of the seven, losing only, I believe, in 97 to Canada. Um, anyway, we'll get to that in future years. Um, Okay, so uh, worlds went off quite well. There, there was a few hiccups, but uh, it, it uh, happened. Um, U.S. Nationals earlier that year, by the way, was famous for um, Steve Bishop at the time was the guy who ran it, and the player meeting before it ended up running for three hours as the players argued with Steve about how the U.S. Nationals should be run. A little, little, uh, little tidbit of the craziness of some early, uh, early events. Okay. In October, or sorry, in September of that year, we introduced the idea of something called Type 2. Uh, you guys might know it now as standard. Uh, the idea was we introduced the concept of a, um, a format. Before that, there was one way to play Magic, and that one way was whatever cards you had. Um, uh, we had limited you to four, four of them. There was a band restricted list, but you just played with what you owned. For the first time ever, we said, you know what? We're going to make a format in which only recent stuff's allowed, only the... I'm not sure how it was defined originally, but um, it, it was the most recent sets. It, it was around two years. Um, and originally, original Magic was called Type 1 when you play anything. The new one was called Type 2. Uh, we would later rename them. Uh, eventually, eventually, Type 1 would be Vintage and Type 2 would be Standard as we know it today. Um, they, they had a few names in between that. Um, uh, in October, uh, I believe we had a new restricted list, Chaos Orb, Falling Star, Channel... Or, sorry, they all got banned. Those cards got banned. Um, and we had, on October 14th, something called The Gathering in New York City. So uh, the pre-release, essentially, for Homelands was a special event that we had run in New York. It was very expensive. I believe we spent like a million, or Wizards spent like a million dollars on it. And it was this event. There was, there was a tournament that was part of it, but there was a lot more we... I called it like the Dominaria Haunted House where there's this experience you went through uh, and uh, R&D was there gunslinging. I was slinging for the event. I wasn't, ofi- I wasn't officially... 
I think I had, I had been hired, but I hadn't started yet. And they, they flew me for, to the gathering. Um, in fact, I still have my shirt. Um, and I did a lot of gunsling, and there was, I don't know, artist signings and, and all sorts of stuff. It was, it was the first... Truly, I mean, I guess we had done the pre-release at in uh, Toronto for Ice Age. This was the second kind of big event we had done. Um, and it was really blown out. Um, and then, in October of that year, Homelands would come out. So, Fallen Empires had all sorts of problems because it... Um, uh, I mean, there were some rarity problems and uh, it was printed way too much. So, Homelands was the first set that really did not get a super strong fan reaction. Um, it was a very flavorful set. I, I've gone on record as saying that I believe Homeland is the worst design set in Magic history. Um, uh, and and real, real quickly, the story behind it is when, um, when they realized that Magic was going to go big, both Richard and Peter each went to different people and had asked them to work on Magic sets. Or, or people, in Peter's case, I think people came to Peter because Magic had been successful, and asked if they could make a Magic set. Uh, and the two people, uh, it was Scott Hungerford and Kyle Namvar. Uh, Kyle, I think, was the head of the customer service, and Scooter, Scott, also known as Scooter, was on the continuity at the time, uh, what we call the creative team, at the time it was called continuity. Um, and they had made a set that was super, super flavorful, uh, but um, neither one of them were really game designers. They had no sort of technical... Uh, at least with Magic, and when they had turned the set in, R&D was not happy with it, uh, and R&D at the time, which mostly was the East Coast Playtesters um, and Richard, said that they didn't think we should print it, and uh, Peter overruled them and said, no, I promised him we would do it. Uh, and so there was a lot of tension around that set. Um, I think that R&D at the time, uh, because they were very upset, said, oh, okay, Peter, if you think this is so good, we don't want to change it, you know, and lose its vision. So they really did not do a lot of development on it because uh, they were very frustrated that they were being forced to put it out when they did not think it was acceptable. Um, and so Homeland definitely had this issue of it came out, it, uh, it had some design issues, it wasn't strongly developed. Uh, and so it's the first set that really um, kind of made a sour taste in the sense that it, it was perceived publicly as not being very good. Um, like I said... I think it did a good job of trying to hit some flavor, but the flavor was very... Um, they they kind of took all these things that were popular in Magic and sort of put them all in their own world, the world called Agulthra. And so it had a lot of cool elements. It had the Sengir, and it had Sarah, and it had different things. Uh, it was a little mosh-poshy, though. It definitely... It didn't have a cohesion that you'll see in later sets where, you know, it was clearly one world. It was kind of a world that, like... You know, here were vampires, and there was sort of like Australian minotaurs, and there was dwarves, and there it it, it had a lot of interesting things that people liked, but it definitely um, was a it was a hodgepodge. Um, also in October, one of the things that I consider to be one of the uh, highlights of magic for me uh, is I was hired in October of that year. Uh, in October of 1995, I actually started on October 30th. That's my anniversary of the day I started. Um, I started at the end of the month because the way insurance worked at the time, that your insurance kicked in the first month, the first first that you were there. So by starting at the end of the month, I kicked in right away. The reason I started on the 30th was that I wanted to be there for Halloween, and so I came the day before. Um, uh, for those who have read my article about me meeting my wife, uh, that is the year where I dressed up as Master Mime, the world's first mime superhero. 
uh, that could talk as a superpower. And nobody understood my costume, but I thought it was funny. Um, so, uh, basically, by the way, when I talk about R&D, there's different waves. So the first wave was most of the people that had been playtufters. So that was Scaff Elias, Jim Lynn, Dave Petty, at the very tail end of that, Charlie Catino, uh, Richard, Richard, obviously. Um, so it was the people that kind of had been with Magic before it began. Um, the second wave, uh, Magic was big enough, or Wizards was big enough, that they were branching out and doing other things. And so most of those people um, wanted to be working on other aspects of, of, for Wizards, and so they brought in fresh blood to work on Magic. And so essentially... Uh, I was hired, so in October of that year, I was hired, Bill Rose was hired, our current VP of R&D, and a guy named William Jockish was hired. Um, in January of, of 96, Mike, Mike Elliott would be hired, and the following year, um, Henry Stern would be hired. The five of us were really what I call the second wave of R&D, um, and the way it worked back then was, it, there weren't teams for each development, the five of us were the development team for every set. And so early in Magic, when I first got there, I was, I was just on every development team because there weren't teams, just, hey, we were the Magic R&D people, we did all the development. Um, and uh, anyway, at some point I'll do a podcast on early Wizards. I mean, I've talked about the history of Wizards, but there, there's a fun podcast on R&D, early R&D. Uh, it was definitely a, a very unique place. Anyway, uh, the year ended on a sour note. Um, so what had happened was, if you remember, Peter started the company as a role-playing company, uh, and although Magic had gotten bigger, there was also a lot of role-playing that still went on. Um, as Magic got money, Peter invested some of that in their role-playing, um, but the problem was that the role-playing... Um, we would later, and I'll talk about this uh, when we get there, would acquire uh, TSR and acquire um, their biggest property, Dungeons & Dragons, but at the time we didn't have Dungeons & Dragons, so all of our role-playing was much smaller scale, and it was losing money. And so Peter came to the conclusion that we needed to stop doing the role-playing. Which, by the way, was very, very hard for Peter to do. Peter, Peter loved role-playing. In fact, the reason he started the company was role-playing. So for Peter, um, giving up the role-playing was a, was a sad thing. Um, and it was known in the company as Black Wednesday. Uh, basically what happened was we used to have an all-hands where literally every single person in the company would get in one room. We still have all-hands, but now we have to go to an auditorium. But uh, everyone would get into one room, and Peter would come up and talk to everybody. Um, he'd, like, he'd introduce the new hires, and at the time, uh, we're talking about a couple hundred people. The company had a couple hundred people. Um, so anyway, we got called into this meeting, and Peter said, okay, um, there were um, two groups at the time. Uh, I forget, there was Product Group 1 and Product Group 2. So Product Group 1 was magic and all the magic-related things. And Project 2 was everything that wasn't magic. Um, and so what happened was, the, 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 way, I, the, the way the story was told me, because I was in Project Group 1, um, so Catherine Haynes, who ran the Duelist, um, did not get along really well with the guy who was in charge of Product Group 1, so she had gotten permission to put the Duelist in Product Group 2. So she attended the Product Group 2 meeting. And so, as she describes it, uh, basically they got in, and the, the, the head of product group two said, okay, everybody, um, we're going to have some layoffs. Everybody in this room, oh, except the duelist, is being laid off. And uh, all the role-playing, all the stuff we had been doing um, that was outside of Magic. I mean, Magic obviously was very successful, um, but everything that wasn't Magic-adjacent 
uh, mostly which was role-playing, got let go, stopped that day. There was a lot of layoffs. It was a very sad time. Um, Magic, up to that point, had just been growing, 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 hiring as fast as it could. This is the first time we ever sort of cut back. It's the first time the company ever made a, I call it like a, you know, kind of like a, a grown-up company decision where, we, you know, we had to do something that, like, the, the company, for the health of the company, needed to get done. But it was very, very hard. It was particularly hard on Peter, and it was hard on the company. Um, and remember, I had just got there, you know, the end of October, so... Um, I mean, I'd been freelancing for a while, and I knew a lot of people from Wizards. Uh, and it was, it was very sad for me, but it, it was... Uh, for the people that had been there a little longer, it was even sadder. Um, but anyway, that was 1995, and I'm now at Wizards. Um, so, a little recap on the year. It was definitely a year of growth. We expanded into uh, international markets. Um, it also was a year of the revise and Chronicles and the Restricted List and sort of lessons learned... Uh, I mean, Ice Age definitely was probably the high point of the year as far as set releases. Um, we had uh, regionals for the first time. There was nationals and worlds. And for the first time ever, we had Ma- Magic had its own world. It was its own event. Um, I got hired. Uh, so 95 had a lot going on. It was, it was a new wave of R&D. Um, but anyway, uh, it was a year of growth, a year of... Um, some growing pains. I mean, I, I said 94 was a year of growing pains. I think 95 was a little extension of some growing pains, but starting to find our feet, starting to get international. Um, I think in 96, we really start taking off. And uh, anyway, thanks for joining me to hear about 1995. Uh, it's always fun to talk about Wizards history. And um, thanks for listening. So uh, as much as I enjoy this, I love talking about Magic's past, but I also have to work on Magic's future. So if you'll excuse me, it's time for me to be making magic. Talk to you next time.